Uh, we're going to be jumping into the book of Acts, chapter 15. So why don't you uh, grab your Bible or your app, open up, turn to Acts, chapter 15. That's where we're at. Uh, we've been in a series for a really long time in the book of Acts, and then we were not in the series for a really long time, um, looking at a handful of other topics. And uh, now we're getting back into this series of looking at the book of Acts, uh, possibly for another really long time, and until we're done with this uh, great book. Um, but a little bit of a background in terms of what we're looking at today. We're in chapter 15, Acts. Um, we'll be looking at the subject of picking up where we left off a long time ago, uh, the early church as it was expanding. So the book of Acts is like the story about, or biography about the early church and how it grew and Acts chapter 15 is uh, this long chapter, which we won't go into the rest of the back story of that, but it starts out with conflict, and it kind of migrates through uh, in terms of conflict resolution or stewarding, and then ultimately ends in just a handful of verses, which what we'll read in a moment, with more conflict. So my message title today is uh, Stewarding Conflict. So what we'll do is we'll look at the story that kind of spells out the type of conflict that was going on. And then we'll try to look at some principles, some ways to think about how you and I can actually steward or work through uh, the complexities of of conflict. Because the fact is, every one of us, uh, because we're human beings, because uh, we contribute to the brokenness in humanity, because you and I, we are contributors to this, uh, at some point we will either be in broken, strained conflicts, uh, or we will cause them, or we will be the recipients of And so we want to think about how can we steward conflicts in a way that are productive, that lead to growth and lead to health and lead to a way that uh, shows forth uh, the love of Jesus in in good ways. That's what we'll look at here this morning. So um, let me pray first, and then we'll read the passage, which will be Acts 15, verses 36 to 41, and then uh, we'll just jump in. So let me pray. Let's read. We'll jump in. God, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear what you have to say. God, help me to be able to communicate these things um, in a way, Lord, that is um, accurate to your word and rightly represents it. Um, God, thank you that there's a lot of grace because even the topics that we'll be looking at here today, uh, there are parts of much of it, God, that I, I wrestle with and I need grace from you. And I thank you, God, that there is grace to think through and pray through these things so that we can uh, live through these things in a way that is productive and we grow in grace. We become more like Jesus rather than running from things like this and not becoming like Jesus. So God, I pray that you would help us to have humble hearts, to learn, to grow uh, from the things that you want to teach us here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Acts 15, uh, we'll pick it up, like I said, at verse 36. Let me find this here real quick. And uh, I'm going to be reading out of the uh, ESV. It says this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. So I'll pause real quick and a little backstory. Uh, So... Prior to this, the backstory to this is Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas was uh, a friend of Paul's in the early church. And uh, they had gone on what we would call typically the first missionary journey. They, part of this missionary journey, they, uh, do we have a map? I think I had a map. Cool. Awesome. So here's the map. 
So if you follow that red line, they kind of went up into the region where it says Lycia, right very center of the map, uh, versus Asia or Asia Minor. That's all modern-day Turkey, if you're trying to think and figure out as to where that's at. Uh, that was predominantly where Paul and Barnabas spent the majority of their time. Um, and so what happened was uh, they planted churches, which would have been small groups, uh, small communities of people that loved and followed Jesus and were seeking to be obedient to the life of Christ. And so uh, after Paul had planted these little Jesus communities, he would then return. He returned with Barnabas to the main uh, center or main central church that they came out of, which was uh, Antioch. So if you see Syria over there, it's the same area where Syria is today. So up to the uh, north uh, there, you see Antioch. That's kind of the main home church where Paul and Barnabas were. So after some days, it says, whether that was weeks, months, years, we don't really know exactly, but after some days, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back and revisit the churches that we planted, kind of check up on them, see how they're doing, make sure that everything is doing okay, and that Jesus is being central uh, in all of these places. So everything at this point is fine. And then it uh, goes on to say uh, in verse 37, then Barnabas wanted to take with them a guy by the name of uh, John called Mark. But Paul thought that it was best not to take with them the one with whom, uh, with, who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there was a sharp agreement that had arisen so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Uh, but Paul chose Silas and he departed, having been commended by the brothers of the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So one of the things that we identify real quickly, which we'll come back to in just a moment, is that there was a massive disagreement. This was a, this was a major issue in the early church. And so what I want to do is I want to just break this first little section down into three ways. Uh, first of all, we'll take a look at the situation that kind of happened, try to unpack, uh, give some bullet points of some of the things to think about. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll try to think about conflict. Um, we'll try to understand some things of what not to do in regards to conflict, and then we'll take a look at some things of what to do in regards to conflict. So let's really try to wrap our minds around the actual storyline of what's happening here, the narrative. So first of all, I want to take a look at the, the actual situation. Um, I think there's a tendency sometimes to kind of downplay this situation. Um, I was uh, listening to a guy, a preacher, and he was just like, hey, it's no big deal. Um, God used this for good. So rather than one missionary journey, a two missionary journeys, right? God doubled it up, and it's all good. But unfortunately, I think that kind of downplays or minimizes the actual crisis that took place, that there's a reason why Luke, in telling us a story, focused, and the word choices that he actually used was to emphasize that this was a big deal. This is not to be minimized. This is not a small thing to happen, something to kind of uh, look at the end and just be like, hey, it all worked out for good, right? Isn't that fine? And the fact of the matter is, if you or I were to go through a pretty heavy type of conflict, uh, the last thing that any of us ever want to do is to minimize the conflict or the crisis that you're in. That's one of the worst things that you can do. Um, I mean, in some cases, sometimes we need a dose of reality to think about rightly because sometimes our emotions overtake us. So we're not really thinking through these things rightly. We're just kind of uh, moved by our emotions. And so emotionally, we are out of control. And so sometimes it's helpful for someone outside of that who's not affected by the emotion to sit us down and be like, hey, here, this is not a big deal. Settle down, calm down, take a breath, count to 10, and then return back into the situation. But Luke, for whatever reason, wants us to understand that this is, uh, this is no, no small thing. Now, depending upon the translation 
of your Bible, there's a Greek word that's actually used there to describe uh, that phrase is no small disagreement, so, or sharp disagreement, whichever translation you have. Mine says sharp disagreement. It's actually the Greek word paroxymos. Um, and there's an English word that's actually derived from that that has a medical context. And uh, the way it's used within a medical context is for a body to be uh, overtaken by some form of a fever where it enters into a convulsion. It, it can be a reference to having this uh, super high fever. Uh, it carries this overtone of severity that's heightened by emotions. Or someone, as they're talking, their face is getting red, uh, it's getting all distorted. It's this idea, have you ever seen someone talking, and uh, they're so intense, and every time they're talking, their face gets really bright red, and they're intense, and their voice raises. Um, I, I'm thinking of someone in my mind right now on the news, and he's the president, but I'm not going to say his name. But the point of the matter is, the way it's oftentimes portrayed, but right? Uh, not a political statement, so calm down. But the point is, is that this is what the word is implying, that there's this level of intensity, and this is what is being described that happened between Paul and Barnabas. This is not a small thing. It escalated. And the question oftentimes gets asked is, like, who's right, who's wrong? And uh, I, I don't want to spend time thinking about that because I, I think it's kind of fruitless, but I want to just kind of point out some bullet points. So let's take a look at three things within this context. One, we'll just take a look at the details. And then we'll look at uh, two other final things with regard to this. So a few of the details. Number one is that Barnabas and John Mark were actually cousins. So this is some stuff the rest of the story tells us that Luke doesn't tell us here, or just implied within the story. Uh, Colossians 4.10, we're told that these two guys were actually cousins. So they were related with each other. So you get a little bit of an idea, maybe why Barnabas was already uh, leaning towards showing an extra measure of grace towards uh, this guy, John, uh, John Mark. Uh, the second thing, we're told that Paul had, or that seems to be implied here, that Paul has this real tunnel vision with regard to the mission. Um, have you ever met someone that, with regard to the project or the mission or the, uh, the big game plan, they're really focused on that thing? Um, and they might not be very friendly or easy to work with. Have you ever met someone like that? When it comes to the actual job that needs to get done, they're focused completely upon that thing. And they might be the, a very difficult person to work with. They step on toes. They're not very polite. They might be kind of rude. Um, Paul seems to be this guy that had a really clear focus on the mission. And that kind of leads into the next one, is that Paul actually questioned John Mark's maturity and responsibility, um, as Luke tells us here. Now, this is a reference to kind of the first missionary journey. So when Paul and Barnabas went out on this journey... Uh, they set out by way of cargo ship. Now, you got to think of it this way, because in today's modern you know, America, when we think about mission trips, so uh, you, you need to completely rid your mind or, and or memory of a mission trip. So if you ever went on a mission trip to Europe or Mexico, you know, it's like maybe a nice bus, or you sleep in a three-star, four-star hotel, you eat good food, and, and it's like a two-day, or, or between two days to two weeks, and nice and simple, easy accommodations and whatnot, and we might call suffering for Jesus not having Wi-Fi, or like slow Wi-Fi, God forbid, you know, like the old school kind, uh, dial-up, but the point of the matter is like, we're suffering for Jesus. That's, that's a whole other level of what Paul was going through. So the mission trip that he had gone through, he was on a cargo ship, and cargo ships obviously were prone to... Uh, rats, which were prone to disease and prone to all forms of other uh, uh, sicknesses and whatnot that Paul uh, was subjected to. And so when Paul and Barnabas went, they needed someone to bring along with them that would help carry their luggage and help them along in the mission. So John Mark seemed to be that guy. He was going to be the guy that was going to carry the bags. He was going to carry 
uh, any uh, necessary equipment that was needed for this missionary journey. But somewhere along the line, John Mark got overwhelmed. It was kind of like, I can't do this. He taps out. He turns back. He leaves. Um, I think Paul would have looked at this and thought, I don't have confidence in John Mark's ability to re-engage with this level of uh, mission trip that Paul was concerned that bringing John Mark along might bring about more consequences and problems in the future. So Paul's just like, no, that's a bad idea to bring John Mark along. But Barnabas is totally focused on the fact of bringing John Mark along, perhaps because it's his cousin. But I think there's something else at play here, is that the type of person that Barnabas was. Barnabas was the type of guy that was really focused on people. So you have one guy that's very focused on the mission, the other guy that's really focused on people. And the person that's focused on the people uh, might look at this thing and think he'd be willing to put the mission in jeopardy if it's somehow going to show dignity and second chance to a person. Where Paul's kind of like, I'll put the person in jeopardy and be an offense to them if somehow it's going to protect the mission. So you have one that's focused on the mission, that's willing to say no to people that may or may not be mature or faithful or able to uh, keep the same pace. Barnabas, who's just like, we've got to focus on the people. John Mark needs a second chance, and we need to bring John Mark along. And this led to a major division between Paul and Barnabas, to where they then split ways. It's a big deal. Uh, And it's possible, here's another secondary thing to think about, another layer to this, uh, that perhaps, depending upon how you place Galatians chapter 2, the chapter that talks about when Barnabas uh, confronted uh, Peter and Barn- uh, or I'm sorry, when Paul confronted Peter and Barnabas uh, when he came to the church in Antioch. Uh, there's a lot of discussion as to when this actually took place, but if this took place prior to this event, then it's possible that maybe Paul is already kind of having some second guesses in his mind in terms of Barnabas's judgment and discernment. Because in Paul's mind, he's going to be going to churches that are not Jewish. Uh, they're predominantly Gentile region. And that's going to be the focus of the mission. So perhaps at this point, Paul's kind of like, I can do without, definitely do without John Mark. And perhaps I can even do without Barnabas. And because they might jeopardize the mission that I feel called to do. And then another thing to think about as well is that it's likely that Paul was sort of a protege to Barnabas. Now, again, when Paul kind of first got saved. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Paul, he was kind of like an antagonist in the storyline. He was a guy that was in opposition to Jesus. He was in opposition to Jesus' people. He actually had this kind of like commission to go out and to arrest um, people that were following Jesus. And yet he has this encounter with with Jesus. He's radically changed, radically saved. And uh, you would imagine a lot of people had their suspicions. Like, how do we know this guy is not an undercover like uh, agent trying to figure out who are Jesus' people so that they can then be arrested? Well, Barnabas comes to the side, comes to the aid of Paul and says, listen, I will stick with you. I will stand by you and I will be the one that represents you in front of all of these people that disbelieve your story. So Barnabas was sort of this, uh, this uh, mentor to Paul the apostle and led him and came alongside him and helped him and established him and no doubt trained him and taught him and coached him in the faith. And now Paul is uh, perhaps second-guessing Barnabas. And Barnabas perhaps is maybe feeling this level of like, look, Paul, you owe me. And if you're not going to allow us to bring John Mark along, then we're going to split ways. And that's exactly what happened. So 
Here's a couple of things to think about with regard to the story. We'll move on. Number one, or the second thing in this uh, idea is the downside. What are the downsides to this? No, well, number one is they separated. Like, that's, that's a downside. Unfortunately, this uh, movement that, and here's the irony, that preached peace was launched out of conflict. So there's an inter- interesting uh, irony here that that's what this movement was all about, was proclaiming the gospel of peace. And yet, they couldn't get their stuff together. In, in some ways, it was over an issue of mission versus person. And so, again, uh, Luke didn't have to write this little detail in the story. I mean, we're talking, this is a handful of verses. Why does Luke put this in there? Because apparently, to the Holy Spirit, it matters. If anything, for us to just kind of pause, to reflect, to think, to mull over, to ask questions, uh, and then to proceed. And then the second element in terms of a downside is that uh, this it created this offense. Um, you know, again, we're talking about human beings made in the image of God that actually have feelings, uh, that anger and hurt. I mean, put yourself in John Mark's sandals, all right? Uh, imagine being John Mark. Like, you failed first time. You feel the sense of guilt and shame, like, yeah, I dropped the ball. I failed. I went home to my mommy because I was afraid. And now you have this opportunity of maybe going out again, and Paul's like, no. Imagine if you're John Mark, how you'd feel. Like, do I not measure up? Am I not good? What's wrong with me? Am I a failure? Will I always be doomed to be a failure? So again, these were no doubt uh, emotions that were probably being experienced in this situation. So these are some of the downsides. So the upsides, next one, I think are along these lines. Uh, number one, we know that healing and reconciliation at some point would play back into the storyline. A uh, handful of verses, Colossians 4.10 says this, Paul referring to my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you greetings as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So at some point in the future, uh, when Paul, whenever it was that he wrote Colossians, he writes regarding this guy, John Mark, and he says, look, I, he sends greetings. He's, he's obviously somehow reconnected uh, with John Mark. Philemon uh, 23, verse uh, 23 and 24 says, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ sends you greetings, so do Mark, my fellow worker. And 2 Timothy 4.11 says, get Mark and bring him to me because he is helpful to me. So not only did things kind of get patched over, but it seemed to be like that relationship was restored. So that John Mark, so Paul didn't like cast out John Mark forever. This wasn't like a John Mark, you, will, you failed once, you will always fail, and you will never, ever be redeemed. In fact, perhaps in Paul's mind, he's like, look, I want to give John Mark a second chance, but... This mission trip is not the right territory to give John Mark a second chance. This is not the right proving ground. So Paul's position is no, John Mark. Barnabas' position was yes, John Mark. And if you say no, then we're going to go our separate ways, which is inevitably what ended up happening, which leads to the second upside in some ways, is that God created two teams out of uh, the irony of man's wrath. Uh, N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, wrote something along these lines. Uh, He says this, that doesn't excuse the sinful human wrath, of course. Uh, It simply shows that, once again, what the gospel message itself massively demonstrates, that God can take the greatest human folly and sin and bring good from it. Just pause and think about that for a moment. (laughs) I love this. That God can take uh, the greatest human folly and sin and bring great good about it. Like, this is the story of what God does. This is the very narrative of the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, the greatest most of human folly. God takes this and rebrands it. It becomes literally the sign 
that God is on the move. Heaven is being launched upon this broken planet. And as he goes on, he says, as Psalm 76.10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, and the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Uh, God is able to take some of the most horrible, horrific types of circumstances and use them for his glory. And that's exactly what uh, is being implied here. All right, let's move on from the situation, and let's begin to think about the context or the idea of conflict. I want to take a look at the next slide and kind of ask a question that uh, James in the New Testament uh, asks, and it's the question. Where do fights and quarrels among you come from? So, this is, so he's obviously pondering this, philosophizing, thinking about, where does this come from? Like, why do we have this proclivity to fight and argue and quarrel and to be offended and to be an offense? Why does this happen? Because, look, at the end of the day, again, all of us, our hands are bloodied from this. Like, all of us, we play into this. We've been offended. We cause offense. Uh, and so no one in this room is immune from this. So what I, what I would propose to you is to think about this, to pray through it, to, to humble yourself, to think uh, uh, critically and seriously about some potential solutions to this. And at the same time, think about some of the potential rallies of what might happen if you don't think carefully through these things or if you just respond in ways that are natural or that are the default mode of your heart. Because one way by which we respond to conflict will actually lead to greater conflict. It just compounds. It's like taking a knot and tying another knot and taking that knot that has two knots now and tying it again, tying it again. So now what you have is what looks like this, but in reality it's a series of 100 knots, 200 knots, 500 knots. It's very complex now, in other words. And this is the way that we oftentimes deal with some of these things. Or another way of dealing with it is one that actually leads to constructive outcomes. It leads to life. leads to wholeness. So what are some ways to think about this? So James tells us what causes fights, or asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire something, but do not have it, so you attack. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So James's diagnosis, or uh, thinking through this, uh, is to basically say what, what, one of the reasons, one of the root causes of conflicts and quarrels and fighting and argumentation that happen within our lives is that we want something. Now, that might not necessarily be something tangible. What we really want is maybe what we really want. We want to be heard. We want to be seen. We want our opinion to somehow matter. We want our pain that we feel that you caused to be affirmed, to be acknowledged. That might be what we want. And as long as we continue to argue and fight or talk past each other, uh, there is no confidence that the other's pain or hurt or sorrow or grief is actually being acknowledged. So what happens is it creates. Everything just kind of begins to escalate. And there are different ways in which we respond to conflict as a result. So uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 18, uh, written by Paul the Apostle, at a later date, he says this, If possible, so far, as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to have peaceable relationships with everyone at all times, but what Paul is saying is, as is possible, if it's possible, sometimes it's not always possible, but if it's possible, so as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. So with that, let's jump in and think about some ways in which we can steward conflict. And again, I'm not saying the way we manage conflict. I want to choose my words carefully and say, This is about uh, conflict, uh, uh, stewardship, stewarding 
conflict as opposed to just managing conflict. Because I think if it's stewarded well, it can lead to levels of creativity and some idea of constructiveness. And if it's not stewarded well, I think it can lead to brokenness, further brokenness, and compound that brokenness. Okay, so next slide. I want to just talk a little bit about this. There's a guy by the name of Ken Sandy. He's actually written a really good book. I'd highly recommend if you've never read it. Um, he's actually a lawyer, trained as a lawyer, and uh, has invested his life into the church and serving the church. And he's written some great uh, material, great books. He's got a website. You can check out. I think it's the peacemaker.net or something. I don't know. You can just Google it and find out. Um, but the, what, what he does, he basically writes down there's three different ways in which we oftentimes uh, deal with conflict. Uh, on the one hand, we are having these either peacemaking responses or he says peace-faking responses or peace-breaking responses. And we'll look at each one of these uh, as we go. So first of which I want to look at is some ways in which not to actually deal with conflict. So number one, these are some ways or some things not to do when you and I face conflict. So number one, he describes, again, this is all from his book and whatnot, his writing. Uh, he says that there are three different ways in which we fake peace as opposed to make peace. We fake peace, all right? He says this, number one, we are kind of in a state of denial where we deny that really something has happened. We pretend that the conflict doesn't exist or refuse to do what uh, we need to do in order to make this thing work out. So we deny uh, and we, 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 uh, we make excuses for it. Uh, the second thing we do is we blame. So instead of taking responsibility for our choices, uh, we escape uh, consequences by blaming others. And this is something we oftentimes, all of us, are prone to. I mean, this is, again, integrated into actually very human nature. If you read the very third, you know, third chapter of the Bible, Adam and Eve are literally, they're blaming each other. Uh, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and on down the food chain it goes. There's this constant, ongoing uh, form of blame, and we are all prone to it. And he's saying that this is actually a way to avoid uh, making peace. It's actually pay, uh, faking peace. It's not dealing with peace. It's not making peace. It's faking it. So he describes it as blame. The third of which, he says, is to run away. And he describes it uh, that we can try to pull away, we ignore it, we run away. Um, and one of the things I think is important uh, to state about this is that if in the context of abuse, so if it's physical, sexual, emotional, if that type of abuse is happening, I would suggest that running is actually your best defense in this circumstance. You have to run. The, uh, this, is, this is the distinguish various forms of conflict in our lives. So there are typical types of conflict that oftentimes we have, face throughout life, and then there are oftentimes uh, really heavy, hardcore, difficult, challenging types of conflict that need to be dealt with within a different context. And I would put this in the context of abuse. So physical, sexual, emotional forms of abuse are taking place. Uh, running away is important, but running, not just running away randomly, but running to a place that you can then find some form of uh, creative and uh, constructive forms of help and healing within those contexts. But in the idea of running away, this can be just simply, again, pulling away physically, going to another church, going to another Bible study, going to another marriage, going to another relationship, going to another set of apartments, away from, going to another family, various forms of running away. Or in an ultimate sense, suicide is the ultimate form of running away. Um, 
a couple weeks ago, several weeks ago, I uh, heard a lot about it, so I thought I'm going to start watching 13 Reasons Why. Some of you guys probably have watched it. It's a very difficult uh, show to watch. It's, uh, uh, it's challenging. It's, it's, uh, there's, it's really dark. But I think at the end of the day, there's a message that needs to be heard uh, and thought through and critically analyzed, honestly, like critically thought through and analyzed. And in a sense, uh, there's some controversy, and some of the controversy surrounds is the, uh, the, the intention of the author to basically state that suicide is a viable form. Uh, I, I, don't, I haven't gotten to the part, that part in the, uh, the shows yet, but again, the point of the matter is, is the gal, the main character in the show, commits suicide. And part of it is, it's her story of how she's been abused, uh, sexually, uh, emotionally, bullied in school, and she's in incredible amounts of grief and pain and hurt and conflict. And so rather than others around her being able to be constructive voices helping her walk through this, uh, they're either ignoring it by way of some of her close friends or missing it because they're just not listening or they're minimalizing it. And at the end of the day, it's this ultimate form whereby she is trying to, attempting to run away from it. And here's what I would suggest really clearly, that if you are someone here that you've been bullied you are in a place of incredible anxiety or grief or pain or loss or hurt, and you have t- you played around with that notion of suicide, please listen, that is not a viable, life-giving, literally not a life-giving option. It is exactly what the enemy of your soul would intend. Jesus said clearly that the devil is a liar and a, and a, and a murderer from the very beginning. His aim is to somehow... Uh, subvert and to trick us into assuming that there are no other options in life and dealing with processing our grief, that suicide is ultimately the only way to run away from our grief and our loss. And I want to suggest to you, say to you clearly, that there are other ways to deal with grief and loss and conflict. That at the end of the day, you are made in the image of God. God sees you as incredibly valuable that the very feelings of not being heard, not being seen, that you may be going through in this life, God hears, God sees, and God loves you. That there are people that maybe not immediately in your life that are able to or capable of listening to your grief and loss. But please understand that there may be other circles that you've not tapped into yet that are there that would love to. And again, I would just say this, if, that, if that's you, please, if anything, just talk to me. I'd be happy to help you or shoot me an email. I'd be happy to help point you in the right direction. But what the author of this book is basically saying is, at the end of the day, running away is a form of not dealing with conflict that leads to a place of destructiveness. The second thing I want to take a look at is, in terms of what not to do, is what he describes on the other end of this list is peace-breaking responses. And these come in the form of put-downs, and this is the idea of just uh, harsh cruel words that are spoken to other people. Uh, it describes gossip. This is hurtful words that are spoken about other people to other people uh, with the intent of damaging another person's reputation. This can come in the form of you know, rants on social media about somebody or posting a photo about somebody or with someone in it. That The, the main purpose is intended to somehow uh, destroy another person's reputation. This, this is a form of peace-breaking. It's a form of aggressive... Uh, attack upon someone that has wounded or hurt or caused conflict or grief in your own life. And it, and it really takes the sense of grief and loss and pain and just simply smudges it 
all around the world. It never does. It never mops it up. It never takes it away. It just simply spreads it. And it's this vicious cycle that just keeps going and going and going. At some point, something's got to give. And so this leads to the third thing that he points out is uh, literally fighting. This is physical force or brutality uh, that oftentimes ends up happening. Um, murder, in the ultimate sense, this is, this is where murder comes from. People kill because you've done something to me, you've wounded me, you've made me angry, I'm aggressive. Rather than taking my aggression to a place that is constructive, I use my aggression to somehow bring hurt and pain in the ultimate sense upon somebody else. And this is the idea that's really uh, unpacking in terms of the idea of peace-breaking responses. So let me finish on this last one. I'm done here. So what can we do? What can we do? So these are some examples of things we shouldn't do that oftentimes we play into, we do. Those are the narratives that oftentimes define us. We're all guilty uh, to some degree, some form or some shape of this. Um, But what are some of the things that we can do? And this is what uh, Ken Sandy writes. Uh, Number one, we could overlook an offense. Now, obviously, this is sort of like an entry-level offense. Now, most of the offenses that you and I encounter daily, weekly, monthly, are oftentimes entry-level offenses. It doesn't feel entry-level at the time, right? When someone says something to you or doesn't acknowledge the fact that, you know, you uh, cleaned the kitchen or you did your chores or you did something kind for someone else, when they didn't acknowledge that, now you're offended, we oftentimes allow that offense to settle in our hearts and become this stew of destruction and hurt and anguish and frustration. And so the first thing he says is that we can, over, we can choose. We can choose to overlook the offense. Now, the fact is, is that if this is something that's really intense, really bad, you can't overlook it. And we'll look at some other ways to think about this. But in most cases, uh, we can choose to forgive a wrong action. We can walk away from this conflict. And this ability to overlook a minor offense is really a character trait of wisdom. So listen to how Proverbs chapter 12 describes this. Um, Solomon wrote the Proverbs, and these are these like little nuggets of wisdom. And Solomon wrote this, A fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. Any, any, any fools here? That's me. I'm raising my hand. Yeah, I get two hands. That's me. I'm that guy. And, and I, was, I was thinking about this. Like, how, if, if somehow I can remember this in the midst of an offense, uh, easily offended, why do I easily get offended? Why are, and is it circumstances that sometimes easily offend me? What's going on there? And oftentimes what's happening is it's really this overinflated sense of myself. My opinions are not being appreciated and loved and valued. My voice is not being heard. When in reality, it's about, I'm creating a life about me. And I'm the fool. So it's like, how do I remember this? Like, I need to get this tattooed on my arm. Like on the one hand, where it says like a fool is quick-tempered. Maybe on this one, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. Like, that's a good tattoo to get. Uh, but the fact is, is that most of us, I for, I for one, it's me. I, my response so often is just quick-tempered. And it's just revealing the fact that I'm far less along this path of wisdom than what I really ever thought. So on the one hand, I can be making these claims, I'm wise, I understand the scripture, I understand God. But if this is one of those areas that is constantly crippling my life, it's only revealing the fact that i still got a lot more work to be done. But the fact is, this is what he's describing here in the book, is that uh, a wise person chooses uh, to overlook 
an offense when he's insulted. So number one, we could overlook an offense. Number two, talk it out. Talk it out, the second one to think about. We talk it out. Take a look at uh, the book of Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 says this. So in some cases, um, offenses um, are not that easy to get over because it's more complex than that. I mean, if you know anything about any form of relationships, you know that they're not always that easy. So sometimes they can get uh, challenging and uh, difficult and they're complicated. And when an offense happens... It's not enough to just sweep it under the rug and and forget about it because sometimes some things just simply don't go away like that. So you need to talk to people. And here's what I would suggest. Here's what actually Matthew suggests or Jesus suggests by way of Matthew. He says, if your brother or sister sins or offends you, another translation, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. So the aim in what Jesus is teaching here is to win them over. It's basically, in other words, it's a form of reconciliation. You have become reconciled, brought back into right relationship, that person that you formerly had a grievance or an offense with. And up until that point, there was this distance, this gap, and an offense had happened, an injustice took place. And what Jesus is saying, the way that you get past that, the way that you break down that barrier, that wall, is you talk about it, you go to that person. And this is a challenge for a lot of us because a lot of us, we don't like to confront those things. There's that word that we hate. It's like the C word that we try to avoid at all costs. It's confrontation. We don't want to confront things. But here's what Jesus is saying, really, is that if we choose to not obey him and think through this carefully and critically, then we allow that offense to continue to remain and it begins to stew and it begins to cultivate. And in a sense, what ends up happening is this thing becomes this cancer that begins to spread. So where, for example, in the book of Hebrews, it says it becomes like this root of bitterness that begins to spring up within us. And if it's not cut down, if it's not removed, it then begins to poison other people. We begin to talk about that person that has offended us to other people. So the solution would be to either forgive it, to just simply forgive that person their offense. And if you can't do that, then you go to that person and talk to them. Not by way of texting, I mean, in some cases, you need to start out with an email, that's fine, or a phone call or a voice message. But ideally, if it's possible, do it face-to-face. Go out to coffee with them, sit down with them in their office, uh, hang out with them, go out to dinner, maybe invite them over to your house, bless them with a meal. I mean, think about that. That may sound shocking. Bless the person that offended you. Yeah, isn't that the gospel? Isn't that what God did to you? This is exactly what we're called to. This is what the gospel is about. We have a God that showers blessing upon blessing upon us, even though we at one point had offended the Almighty, yet he loved us. But we talk through it. We work through it. And it's not always that easy. It's challenging. But sometimes when you press through that, it involves asking questions. And I would suggest that if you are in a context like this, you don't start out by saying, why are you such an idiot? Why did you do this? You, you maybe ask clarifying questions. Hey, there's a circumstance that happened, and you said this, or at least I had heard it this way. Is, is this what you meant when you said this? Because this is how I heard it. You ask clarifying questions, and you give them the opportunity to maybe they might respond by saying, yeah, that's exactly how I wanted you to take it, because you offended me. You made me mad, and so I said something back to you that was offensive. Or they might say, that's not at all what I meant. That's not how I intended it. And I'm sorry if it came out that way. Now you have this pathway of healing unfolding right before your eyes. And you have won your brother or your sister. You're, you're back to relationship again. 
Sometimes it doesn't work that easy. Sometimes it's more complex than that. Sometimes you sit down with that person, and maybe the way that you confronted that person was aggressive. Maybe you came out guns blazing, you were attacking, and it actually uh, compounded it now to where it's really bad. Which leads to the third thing, which he points out, which Jesus actually says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, which leads to the next one, that sometimes we have to get help from other people. We have to bring other people into this context and talk to those people that we have had offense with to somehow work through this. This can come in three forms. One, coaching. This could be just somebody from the outside that's coaching us. We're asking their input. We're saying, uh, hey, what should I do in this circumstance? And they're coaching us. They're just saying, I would suggest write this email. And before you send the email, why don't you send it to me? And I can take a look at it, make sure that you don't have any uh, words that are, you know, barbed, right? Barbed, you know, like barbed wire, barbed. It's like this intended, this subversive attack. Um, You know, it's a coach. The second way might be by way of form of mediation. This is someone who's participating with you, uh, engaged in this conversation, and uh, their, their main objective is to remain um, objective, right? Uh, to not become biased, but to just listen to both sides, to help bring about some form of constructiveness within the context. The third is by way of what we would call arbitration. And this is, uh, this is somebody who's helping us to make a decision for us. Uh, sometimes things can't be resolved within a conflict. Um, the, the idea here is to get help from others. Listen to what uh, Matthew says, or Jesus says within Matthew chapter 18. He says, and if they will not listen, this is the, the one-on-one contact, uh, context. Uh, he says, if they will not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And again, the main objective here is to bring about some level of reconciliation, reconnectedness. Now, that being said, um, there are going to be occasions when it will not always work out. There are occasions, for example, in the book of Acts chapter 15, with the story that we just read. That story did not end with everybody feeling all hunky-dory. It literally ended with people having hurt feelings, crushed egos, uh, feelings of abandonment, feelings of frustration, feelings of angst and anguish, and they ultimately departed and went two separate ways. And again, I think Luke is intending to write this to simply say, look, the church is filled with broken people. Yet God is big and he's able to make good out of broken people. Still. So the point is, is that hopefully, if we're open, God will give us grace to be agents of reconciliation. In some cases, if reconciliation is impossible, if in some cases the circumstances that you have been uh, a part of, maybe abuse, maybe you've been abused, been taken advantage of, maybe the people that you have been interacting with are manipulative and manipulators, there may not be any basis for reconciliation. Maybe the best thing for you would be to pull away, depart from circumstances like that. That may be, in this setting, the most important thing for you, for you to be made whole, to find wholeness, to find grace. But at the end of the day, what we have is this God that gives grace gives grace to help us to think about how we can become agents of reconciliation. But he may also give us grace to know how to be able to walk away graciously and with a heart that's filled with blessing, even towards our enemies. As challenging as that is, that's what the gospel empowers us to. How? Because that is the very narrative of the gospel itself. 
that we, the Bible tells us, were at one point at enmity with God. That's what sin is. That's what rebellion is. That's what basically saying, God, I want to do things my way ultimately amounts to. It amounts to me basically giving God the middle finger, being like, I don't want your interjection, your ideas, your concerns in my life. I want to walk my own path. And yet God, out of incredible love, reaches out and rescues us, taking the offense on the cross. Jesus dying for us, for our sin, literally for our sin, was crushed, bruised, and broken. So that we, who were once offenders towards God by way of our sin and brokenness, can be made whole and be reconciled back to God. This is one of the reasons why Paul later would say that we've been reconciled to God, therefore we have been brought into this ministry of reconciliation, that God calls us and equips us, enables us to now be a part of, become agents of reconciliation. So reconciliation, this idea, is not a marginal note to be brought into our lives if we feel like it. Reconciliation is the very center of the gospel. It is what rescued you. is the fact that God reconciled you to himself and then calls us. So again, I believe that God will give grace if we have open hearts to say, God, I want to learn. I'm going to grow in this. And in the meantime, as we learn to steward conflict, what happens for us is we become more like Jesus. We learn how to forgive others that have hurt us. We learn how to engage and talk with people in ways that are actually constructive and by way of listening to other people, maybe listening to other people's grievances about us. So let me tell you, that's painful. But how do we grow? I mean, let's say, for example, if you're going to go run a marathon, you need someone that has run marathons before. I can't believe and I can't figure out why people would run, but if that's your thing, that's fine. But the fact of the matter is, is you, you need somebody who is better than you to come into your life to coach you, to lead you along, to speak in your life, to tell you, hey, the way you're running is totally wrong, or to tell you the way that you're breathing is not right. You need to do this and follow this pattern in this rhythm, or you need to wear these shoes. You need to stop wearing Vans. Those are not good running shoes. You need to like listen to somebody who knows more than you, who's been on that path, who's done stuff beyond you, and they, they coach you. The same is true in walking with Jesus, that it, it's about opening our hearts up, becoming vulnerable. The Christian life is, is what many have described as, as cruciform. Cruciform is literally just taking the shape of the cross. It's putting your arms out. It's the life of Jesus, arms out. Look, think of it this way. When we put our arms out, that allows others to hurt our heart as opposed to taking the posture where we are protecting ourselves. We're closed. The life of Christ is cruciform. And this is what Jesus invites us into and at the same time helps us, enables us to live a life that's like him. First and foremost, by recognizing that Christ comes to us not with fists raised, not ready to engage us in conflict as a peacebreaker or as a peace faker, but as a peacemaker. He invites us to trust his work for us and then employ us into his kingdom to be a part of that work. So, I'm done. We're going to respond. We're going to sing. And I want to invite you to respond and to sing and to think about this. I'll have the worship team come on up. Why don't we all stand and uh, just, I'll pray over you guys, and let's just do some business with God. Because for some of us, let's all stand. One, two, three. Stand. There we go. Good job.
is a time to think about and just do business with God because this is stuff that's real. Like, this is stuff that real life is made out of. It's not easy. It's not simple. Life can sometimes be extremely, excruciatingly complex. And yet we have a God that doesn't overlook or minimize the complexity of it. He actually equips us to face it. Gives us grace to somehow be a part of his agency of healing. Or, if we have to, in extreme cases, to walk away from places that are really profoundly toxic with grace and poise and strength and Christ-likeness. Let me pray for us and let's do business with God. Let's sing. Let's partake of communion. If you're here and you have things that you need prayer for, I'll be in the front. We'll have some other leaders in the front as well. If you'd like to just be prayed for, I'll, I'll be up here and happy to do that for you. But let's, let me pray and we'll sing. God, thank you for your presence that's here. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You love us. So God, in response now, we want to sing uh, to you love and gratitude.